1: Hi, this is James Kundasamy. Welcome to a Chief Investment Group Educational Webinar Series. Uh, Today, we have Casey Conway back here. Uh, The last time we had him in 2023, and uh, we're going to be today, we're going to be discussing a lot about 2024 economic update and what he sees it going into the future. I mean, last year, I remember very clearly, Casey said, we're going to have a lot of liquidity crimes, a lot of banks are going to be out. And I was like, I took a lot of it was was uh, you know just as uh, information, but I can see everything happening as what you described last year. So you know, <laughs> so this year now I have to really be serious about what you're going to be telling us, right? So, uh, Casey, why not you? I mean, introduce yourself.
0: Sure, uh, so I'm Casey Conway. Great to be back with you, James. Uh, so uh, start started a new a new company entity November first called uh, Casey Nomics, So retired uh, Red Shoe Economics. Uh, had a little little problem with my uh, with my business partner um, but those things happen in partnerships right they come and go so kacinomics uh, llc.com you can still get me at my kcmaicre so uh, i still still uh, have the barbecue sauce so if i give you a barbecue sauce recognition that's the polite way of calling bs on something uh I added a a new act to uh, to my thing my my uh, service dog beagle behind me charlie beagle uh, he's my service dog. He's going to be adding the Beagle-nomics perspective this year. So he, he's been on travel with me a little bit the last uh, uh, last couple of months, but he'll 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 give the animal kingdom perspective on what us humans are doing to the economy. So it'll be a little yeah. a little bit fun
1: there. Maybe. So uh, yeah. we're will for... be more of an independent uh, perspective, I guess, from the animal side, right? Because they don't have emotions on what's happening. I guess. It's a... Yeah, that's right. They just and they'll, no tell you where the,
0: they'll tell you where the fleas are. My favorite Christmas song is you know Feliz Navidad. <laughs> I
1: translate that to (laughs) please on on my dog. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good, good. So let me just quickly finish my introduction and we can go through uh, the discussion with Casey. Uh, So we are deal sponsors focusing in Austin and San Antonio, Texas. We have like, you know, tons of assets, uh, sold half of it last year at the peak of the market. Uh, We have like almost 500 investors, you know, we have raised almost 80 million dollars. We have moved a lot into a ground up development targeting uh, the boom of 2026. I know we talk about, a lot of people talk about survive till 2025. Uh, I'm changing that to let's crush it in 2026 because I think there's going to be a supply gap uh, during that time and uh, we want to take advantage of that. So I'm also author of two uh, best selling books Passive Investing Commercial Real Estate. We have probably sold more than uh, 20,000 copies and the other book, uh, Smarter Doctors. Uh, which I launched uh, to my doctor's friend. So so you can catch me on uh, social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, and uh, what Instagram, and Twitter as well. So good. So Casey, let's get started. Uh, I'm going to be stopped sharing this. So great, Casey. So why not you start with where do you see the economy is heading? And I mean, today there was a big news from the Fed what do you make that out of it? I mean, the 10-year tragedy drop, uh, like four from 4.2 to like 4.1 or 4.0, something right now. It was 4.7, like uh, maybe one month ago, right? It was crazy. Oh, it was like people almost... Uh, I don't know how many people had a suicidal thoughts during that time <laughs> because it's like never-ending story, right? At 4.7, 4.9, I think, right? At one point, right? So, and we hit, hit five as well, right? So... So I think a lot of uh, commercial real estate, uh, especially in our industry, which is multifamily, which has, a lot of people have bridge loans, like really like, oh my God, this is going crazy, right? So why don't you tell about your perspective on what happened today? And we can go through question and answers. This is going to be more of a yeah. podcast style uh, rather than a slide deck and all that. So I would encourage all the audience, uh, if you have questions, start asking the questions as we go. And I will cover that with uh, Casey. But I have, I have a bunch of my own questions. So I'll, I'll go through <laughs> that with Casey as well. Go ahead, Casey. Yeah.
0: So I'll start off so we had a Fed meeting today. The stock market hit record territory. Um, but we got to understand the disconnect between what's going on in this tech stock market and technology companies and how they're valued in our world in commercial real estate. So I'll start with the most obvious question that nobody in the media has the courage to ask at a Fed uh, press conference. So that is, where did this two percent target come from? And, uh, and why two percent? Why not three? Why not four? So during the Volcker era in the 70s and early 80s, his target was 4%. And he actually had some logic around it, which was consumer behavior begins to change pretty dramatically around 4% or higher interest rates. And so during the Volcker era, it was 4%. So where did we get this 2% from? Well, believe it or not, it comes from New Zealand. I'm not making this up. Uh, <laughs> 19, uh, 1988, the New Zealand uh, finance prime minister said we should have a, a target around our you know, inflation and growth rate. So they talked about it, had a few drinks, great meal. And they decided at the end of the evening to pick 2% by putting their finger in the air. No research behind it, no papers. And so the Fed Chair Bernanke in, uh, in 2012 said, you know what, we can't have New Zealand ahead of us. Let's adopt that 2% thing. No research, no papers, pick 2% out of the thin air. So if you wonder where 2% came from, it came from out of thin air. There really is no logic behind it. Can consumers in our economy function at a three percent growth rate, Fed funds rate, you know, or overnight inflation uh, or four percent? I believe it can, because what the consumer does is they do they substitute their behavior. So think about the grocery store. You go to the grocery store and you have 250 bucks to buy food for the week for the family. Well, if some things are more expensive and others aren't. You adjust your behavior. If you can't afford as many steaks and hamburger, you buy chicken or seafood and you adjust your behavior. But you buy two hundred fifty dollars worth of groceries. So I believe that the consumer and our households could better manage a three or four percent number instead of the Fed destroying the damn economy over, you know, what what they've been doing and saying we got to get to two percent. So what they did today is they said we're finally done with raising interest rates. Uh, We think, but maybe not (laughs) all the caveats. Um, So we paused today. We didn't increase. And then they did something just totally uncharacteristic. They said, and we think that next year, based on discussions we're already having, that we're going to cut interest rates at least 75 basis points. And so the market celebrated to hear the Fed say, oh, my God, we're going to we're going to cut rates. Don't bank on it. Remember where we were a year ago. We just had had 10 interest rate increases remember we went from transitory inflation and transitory longer to forget we ever said transitory to oh my god we got inflation january of 2022 they did nothing because the fed takes february off every year to wait for the groundhog to tell us what inflation is going to do then they come back in march and they said oh wow we got to do something we'll do a quarter point and then they take april off every year for spring break And then they come back in May and they said, oh, my God, we got real inflation. So we got a 50 basis point increase in 475 and the world came to an end. Right. Our commercial real estate industry just got hammered. Mm -hmm. Um, So just don't forget that lesson from last year and how fast the Fed pivoted from we think we understand inflation to, you know, now we don't. We're going to have to raise all these rates. And in a matter of, you know, one Fed meeting, they've gone from, you know, we haven't met our goal. We still have work to do to work done. You know, George Bush, we're on the aircraft carrier, everything's done, war solves. I'd be very worried. And so I think what we're going to go through, we, we had, and I've been forecasting this you know, for about a month or so, we'd have no rate increase in December. We'll have none in January. The Fed takes February off. I joke because they wait for the groundhog to tell them what shadow they saw. And then they come back in March. So March is going to be the window where we see if the Fed truly follows through and what I call this jump rope monetary policy, which is hike, skip, skip, hike, whatever the hell they're doing. Um, and we have a lot of jobs reports to come through um, and a lot of inflation data to come. So I, what I point out, the Fed t- today started talking about what's called the Taylor Rule. And the Taylor Rule goes back about 30 years to 1992, in which the basic theory was that the Fed should raise interest rates when its target when inflation is above its target. So we're still there, we're still 3.5% range. And I think even higher than that, if you take it apart and look at things like household, you know, shelter inflation, food inflation, et cetera. So if you're above your target and you have strong GDP, what have they been telling us about GDP of late? We have 5% GDP. Oh my God, we should be like, yeah. this is Ronald Reagan era. So, and we have below 4% unemployment. And so all those things coming together and the Fed thinks that inflation is tamed, you know, I'll just say, oh my God, give me a break. So I don't, I think that there's this is so fragile. They want to end rates because they finally figured out that what they've been doing is killing the economy. We're starting to see the company layoffs. We've seen the impact on commercial real estate. And more importantly, in our industry, we've seen the impact on banks. So for over a half century, we had a really nice model of banks, and that was called the net interest market. The banks would take a penny from you or, or take your deposits to pay you a penny. And they'd go make four pennies on it and that was a great job they could lend lots of money they'd get to the summer they'd take you play golf and everybody was happy well now with what the fed did with 12 interest rate hikes is now banks are having to pay more for deposits even with what the fed said today than um than their loans are earning so they've been paying five six seven percent on deposits and loans only earning four to four and a half percent so how do banks make money the fed hadn't figured that one out yet and they want to put more costs on the banks so the poor banks have a broken business model. And that's why they're not lending. That's why they're locked up. They're not making money. They can't. There's no more capital uh, to lend out there, and they have the headwind facing that we're in the early discovery of what the price change is when you go from four and five percent cap rates to six to seven or higher, and that's not changing. The Fed's not going to change cap rates for us, and this <laughs> spread margin between the ten-year Treasury and cap rates—it's it's like jello. You squish here, and it squishes out over here. So I think we're in the early phases of that. We're in a capital lockup. Um, I tell people all the time, this is the first real estate crisis and recession that we're going to go through where our industry did not cause it. We didn't over leverage. We didn't, you know, overbuild. Uh, we have shortages of housing. We have shortages of almost everything. And, and we didn't overdo it. And now we have a really still residual of supply chain. So my outlook is this is the year 2024 is going to deliver the year that we thought we were going to have in 2023, kind of the capital lockup, the recession. Um, But I think we could actually have a recession where we don't see 5% unemployment. Um, There's just two shortages of labor, but we still have all of these pressures on inflation. If you've been building anything, you know costs are high. If you're renovating anything, you know that labor and costs are high and short on on there. If you're buying any kind of material, if you're a company uh, building something, manufacturing something, all the input costs are still up. Um, So housing shelter hasn't abated. I think, James, my prediction is I think your house went up in value this year. I hadn't even been there yet, but I would bet that it went up in value. And that's not going to change. We're not going back to 2008 or nine. So I think this is a tough year where we have a capital lockup for our industry. And our industry is very dependent on capital. And So if you can't get bank loans, if construction loans can't move into the permanent market because now they're being priced at seven cap rates instead of five and you need more equity, how do we how do we get through that? And we don't have all the answers for that yet. And there's a lot of discovery to come on what the new what the new pricing is going to be. And it's not going to be 70 percent loan to value. Try right now. The quotes, if you get one, is 50 to maybe 60 percent loan to value and your your debt service coverage is under stress. So the loan amount, the LTV gets cut. So I think this is a tough year. You need to stay close to your your equity and your partner relationships you need to hug your property manager because they're the one entity they can help you ring out the efficiencies that you need to help on that on that uh, NOI and the one item that's going to really hit us across our industry all this year and it has this past year is property insurance. So property casualty insurance is up 8 to 12% on a national average which is about double or triple what it has been and if you go to any high risk markets like a Florida try 50 to 200%. So if you're doing a pro forma Go ahead and double or triple your cost of property insurance, casually and look at what that does to your NOI, your debt service coverage, and your loan value. And the reason that's a problem is the big events like hurricanes and uh, fires and whatnot, tornadoes. Those all get really paid out by the reinsurance market, and our regular insurers like Allstate or USAA, great company in your state. They're in Texas. You know they're there to cover the. The kind of smaller, medium size events, but a big risk, they depend on the reinsurance market. So, kind of thinking about your kid, you know, you get your kids driving, learning to drive, and so you increase your deductible to two thousand bucks on the car because you can handle paying that, and then you have the insurance there to cover the big events. So, when they have a car accident that totals the car and they put three people in the hospital and it's a you know quarter million dollar claim, that's reinsurance. That's what we have in our in our property
1: uh, industry, and we don't
0: have a functioning reinsurance market. So I'll stop there and see what you want about.
1: Yeah, back. I mean, uh, yeah, I just got my insurance code, and it went up almost forty percent, right? And so I'm, I'm in a market where, you know, Austin, San Antonio, there's not much of hail. I mean, they are hail, but it's not as much as what we get in Dallas. And Houston is a different market by itself, right? They have a huge insurance, right? I imagine. Increasing forty to fifty. I heard Dallas was experiencing like sixty percent insurance increase, right? and I think look at the uh, Houston market, right? I mean, uh, it, it it was already high insurance, and if you add fifty percent, it's gonna kill you. I know why, right? And but I think I'm also seeing and also talking to a lot of other operators. I mean, the delinquency is really high. Occupancy is having issues. Delinquency is high. People are just struggling to pay rent. And during COVID era, I think a lot of times, uh, I think the government has put in this new law, right? People with FHA loan or people who have some affordability component, they said you can't give uh, three days notice to vacate. Now the law is 30 days notice to vacate. So that pre-COVID uh, uh, era law is still there. I mean, <laughs> we are stuck with it. I don't know when they're going to take off. So what I'm saying is that what I'm seeing that is behavior change with the renters, right? People used to be like, we used to be very strict after 3 days we give them a notice people start paying every th- fourth day they start paying because they know every month they're going to get a eviction notice if they don't follow through but now it's 30 days they said okay you can't do anything for me i'm going to wait for 30 days or 20 days and come what happened 20 25 days they got some other bill coming in and they fall behind now there's two months behind right so ended up there's a lot of issues in terms of people can't afford to catch up and uh, we are seeing, you know, higher eviction. I mean, right now we have it under control. But keep in mind, I'm an I'm an operator which have on my own property management company. So we are like, every day directing our property management uh, personnel directly. But a lot of people don't have that <laughs> that uh, luxury. Right? People have third party property management. Right? So I see a lot of uh, delinquency and occupancy issues uh, in Class B and C. And do you think it's because of the supply that's coming? Right now for 2025, uh, you know, until 2025, 2023, there's a lot of supply coming in because uh, a lot of construction load was given out uh, for the past two years. Yeah, so some markets are
0: worse than others. I think this this new supply is over exaggerated. So if you think Mm -hmm. about it, we'll deliver just under 600,000 new units. In a normal Mm -hmm. year, we would do mid to low 400s. So you're adding maybe 100,000 more units. Divide that by the 50 largest markets or even the 25 largest markets, it's a freaking rounding area. It's like three new projects in a major market. And so uh-huh. I think we're over-exaggerating. What we're, what we're seeing is that friction movement, which is the people that couldn't afford, that moved into the Class A, and now they can't afford the Class A increases. And so they're they're moving around and, uh, and vice versa. And the remote work meant that you couldn't function if you were a millennial that finally got a job. You couldn't function in a one bedroom in COVID. You needed, you you know, an office space or something else. So the demand on two bedrooms, the rents for two bedrooms, even in a Class B property, are almost where Class A rents were before COVID. So I think there's a lot of shuffling that's going on. And we're seeing workforce move around. So I'll give you one of my best new data tips to follow where this is going. So, you know, we'll get in January, we'll get the U-Haul moving report, which is my favorite one. But by, you know, November, December is kind of stale. So the substitute mm-hmm. for that today is the pods uh, monthly indicator the, the moving pods, the shipping containers. So they have now have a monthly index and they show where all these pods are going all over America and, and we're, and that's a lot of millennials. It's the 20 something into the mid to late thirties. Um, and then it's the baby boomers like us that are trying to get all the stuff out of the house so we can sell it and have the millennials come tell us where they want us to ship their pod. So it's mm-hmm. telling us where, where people were going and we're seeing this movement. As, as people have left the West Coast and they've left the Northeast and they've overinflated rents and housing in all of the West, Salt Lake, Denver, Phoenix, throughout the Texas markets, um, Austin, San Antonio, you know, Dallas. Um, what's happened is that that workforce is saying, I can still go anywhere. So they're moving again. And what they're finding is repeat moves on the pods within 12 months, where are they going? And they're moving further inland. They're moving into the Midwest. They're moving into the secondary markets in the Southwest and the Southeast. And so that's a really interesting one to watch is that monthly pods index where they're going. But we're chasing affordability. We were doing it before COVID. It became on steroids uh, during COVID. And now we're finding that all of that affordability that got exported from California and the West Coast to places like Salt Lake City, uh, you know, where you never thought of, about that kind of inflation, or Montana, Um, And even in your Texas markets, they're now almost, you know, approaching the lack of affordability that they were. So I think the oversupply is an easy cop out. It's kind of like the weather, um, you know, for, you know, when they talk about shortages or inflation, they always blame the weather because, you know, nobody supports the weatherman. He's always wrong. He's right two days a year, you know, one day when the sun comes out, one day when it rains. Um, so it's easy to blame the weatherman. He doesn't have a lobbyist. Nobody loves him. It's kind of like economists, right? You know, we're, we're, we're like a broken clock. We're right at least twice, you know, during our cycle. But I think the oh, the new supply is over exaggerated, is more at the high end. It's more of the in-town the urban where we've gone remote work. Remote office is not where all these units were being built. Look at look at Austin, for example. And, where people have gone. So I think that we're too conveniently blaming the news construction supply and the numbers. It's not like before where we've done eight, 900,000 units in a year. This is like another 100,000. It's not, not that big a deal. I think it's the shuffle. It's the remote work. And then I think the other one is the apartments are passing along more of the increases in expenses, the property insurance, the utilities have gone up, the labor. So you look at a typical apartment complex and I would guess, James, you're seeing probably Double digit, ten percent plus increases in expenses, and your rent's mm-hmm. probably only moving two to max, maybe four percent. So if you get that imbalance, that eats up your NOI, and even at the same cap rate, your value would be going down. So I think that's that's part of what's going on as well.
1: Yeah, rents are. I mean, rents are stalled right now. I mean, we we are, we just want to make sure it's occupied and we're able to cash flow the assets. So that's the that's the strategy that we are employing. I'm sure a lot of people are doing that too because right now, you know, if if you're pushing rent in this market you're going to lose out, right? So keep the people, you know, just make sure the turnover cost is low because turnover cost is really high right now just due to the inflation and all that, right? So so recapping on 2024. So what you're saying is it's not as rosy as what we the news came out today, I guess. You have to be really careful and seeing what's going to happen by March, I guess, right? And uh, do, do you think March the election will be helping?
0: So March is a period of watch. So here's the thing. Our fundamentals aren't bad. We're still producing jobs, 150 to 200 thousand plus a month on jobs. So we've got jobs growth. We got below 4% unemployment. People are getting good wages. If you look at the ADP numbers, they're saying if if you just are loyal and you stay at your job, you're still getting about a six percent raise. And if you're a smart millennial and you change jobs three times a year, you're getting a 12% raise every time you move. So the millennials have figured out how to get 36% increases in wages. <laughs> so we got wages going up, low unemployment. We can't build new stuff. So this new supply is going to move through pretty quickly next year. And I think that 25 and 26, we're going to find just like in other property types, like industrial, that if you have two years of no new construction because it shuts down, that, you know, when you wake up in 20, if you can get through next year and probably halfway through 2025, you're going to find some things change pretty dramatically. You're going to see probably the seven and eight cap rates come back into a six range. So they're not five, but they're they're manageable at six that hopefully the inflation, your expenses get a little more in line. You get a good property manager that can help you bring out other savings. You maybe take on a bigger deductible on your property and put some reserves away to get the insurance, you know, at least under 10% increases or whatever. Um, and we're not, we're not solving the shelter problem. We have a maximum shortage of housing in this country. And if they don't have the credit scores because they got student loan debt or they get scratched and dinged up next year, they're not going to be able to buy a house and the builders can't make the numbers work. They can't build anything under $400,000. They're basically you got to move into a manufactured home or a tiny home or, or, or something else, you know, wait for a good rehab that you do on a B or C property to reposition it in the market. So we're not solving that problem. Demand is there. The absorption is going to be there. It's just how do we make the numbers work when the cost of capital went from free money quarter basis point, you know, to we're at five and a quarter to five and a half, even after today. That's that's the biggest increase, the steepest and fastest increase in rates and cost of capital in our industry in our history. Go back to cavemen, not even in pre-cavemen days that they have these kind of rate increases. So that's what we've got to weather. And it's really a capital lockup. And the banks can't can't lend right now. Um, they've got their own credit problems, and the banks are very worried that as these Construction loans mature and they need to get them out into the, in the permanent market. Where is the permanent market? The CMBS markets, 80, 85% shut down. Um, Nobody can hedge. Nobody can figure out the pricing. Banks aren't there to do mini permanent loans because they're being told by the regulators, get those damn loans out of here. you have too much CRE concentration risk. So that's the story that feds not telling. They're being very disingenuous in their comments today. And what I would say is use the next 90 days. So you've got, you know, here at the end of the holidays, you got January, February, and into mid-March. So you got about 90 days to take advantage of a 10-year Treasury that went from five to four, and it may dip a little bit below that. Take advantage of that, ring equity, and see what you can restructure. Talk to a credit union about a, a debt deal. Um, but I think that when we get to March, the inflation numbers we're going to see are back. We have OPEC cutting production on energy, so we're going to see gasoline and energy prices go up. If we have a tough winter. Right. We see the home heating and utility costs go up. Food inflation is not down. One of the things I just posted on this week was one of the biggest threats to food inflation is a veterinarian shortage in this country. And so you need a vet at every FDA center to inspect, you know, the cattle going through or being slaughtered or being exported. Uh, Texas, a big, um, you know, meat and cattle and protein market. And so, um you know, we don't have enough uh, veterinarians to deal with our farm and, and, and food supply, uh, animals and production. So you can see in food inflation, you know, back in an eight to 12% range, you can see energy and gas back above 10%. And the Fed having to totally reverse these stupid comments it made today that said, between one meeting we've gone from, we have work to do to job solve, and we're gonna cut interest rates. If you believe any of that, and that they're not gonna reverse course on that statement and whatnot in the first quarter, then James, I'm gonna help you find some oceanfront land in Las
1: Vegas. We're gonna make <laughs> ocean view yeah, apartments awesome. in Las Vegas. <laughs> It'll be awesome, right? So yeah, we have to watch it. I mean, for me, it's all about the election year, right? I think that's that's what's giving us hope, right? I mean, they I mean the government have to make us feel good, right? Otherwise, you know, it's gonna be not good election for the government, I guess, right? I don't know, but but I think you know, usually they'll do something during the election year to make feel good. I don't know what's gonna happen after the election and and what do you think will happen let's say you know the democratic government stays in power or the republican take over i mean i don't know who i support i don't want to talk about that but what do you think in terms of the policy wise between these two parties if this democratic president continues to stay on what would happen to the whole economy and the commercial real estate and the interest rate versus the republican president
0: yeah so look at what we we can't even get a fiscal budget so we, we we've kicked it down the road so we could have another government shutdown facing us in january and all through next year and look at the downgrades that are coming on our debt and the rest of the world putting together, they're, they're recreating and, and, you know, we're well into the process of the dollar not being the reserve currency. It's called BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Now they're adding the whole bit East. They're going to have their own digital currency. It's well underway. And they're going to say, if you want to buy our stuff, you got to buy our digital currency and pay us in that because you guys have kept us from being able to, to trade on a fair level, you've got the discount for oil and every commodity is priced in your dollar. Now it's going to be priced in our world. So um, we have that headwind against us. We have total fiscal chaos. Neither party is credible. You know, the Republicans used to be, we're the fiscal party, we're going to get things under control. You know, I will use my first barbecue sauce here. That's my polite way of calling BS on something. (laughs) Barbecue sauce on that. Both parties are fiscally a wreck. And so I don't think either party right now, the candidates, really are good for what we need, which is we need to get our fiscal house in order very, very quickly. And nobody wants to take the tough pain in medicine. And then, so if you if you don't, then you look at the states, where are you going to put capital work? Look at the states that are fiscally balanced and in good health. So Texas is one of those. Our Midwest, our Southern states, all fiscally well balanced. So they're in a position without big income tax. Look at Texas, Tennessee, Florida, no income tax. So how do you, if you need to deal with, you know, uh, you know, a, a federal income tax increase or more entitlement spending and more deficit spending. How do you run like hell from it? You go to a fiscally balanced state like a like a Texas or in the Midwest. Um, so I'm very nervous. We are not going to have a clue as to how panicked or calm we should be about the elections, probably until about early summer when we have the political conventions and we wake up and realize that we have the same two kind of two same two candidates that we did in the last election <laughs> running again, and um, you know, and what what are we going to do about it? Look at the the border problem. This isn't a Democrat Republican issue. This is an American. This is a capitalism issue. You guys know the border is completely out of control. We can't have two thousand people a day pouring into your borders. I'm re- I'm really glad that you guys figured out how to send them to New York and San Francisco <laughs> and all those places that want them as voters. Very good strategy. I I like that a lot, but we've got to get our borders under control. We've got to get our fiscal house in order. We've got to balance the budget. We've got to have a a fiscal. I'm really worried about the headwinds that we and then they look at the geopolitical. We have two major war conflicts going on. We've got Russia and Ukraine, which could really blow up in a bad way. Um, And then we've got, you know, the whole Middle East situation where we now have, you know, Ivy League elite. Uh, university presence that thinks it's fine if you talk about genocide on campus and don't stand up to the horrific nature of terrorists. So that's not Palestine; that's Hamas. And just would we tolerate what happened to nine eleven in New York and and whatnot any more than we would you know would expect you know Israel to to tolerate what happened to them? So we've got a real powder keg, and we need to think back to the lessons of nineteen seventy three. In 1973, we ticked off the entire Arab world. And what did they do? They wrote the Seinfeld episode that said, no soup for you, they said, no oil for you. <laughs> oh. And that set off the inflation, that set off bulfer, that set off a decade that it took to fix things. What if, what if the Arabs were there right now doing we're cutting production? What if they say, you know, we've got plenty of demand in Africa, in Asia, and the rest of the world, so we'll continue to sell oil there, but we're gonna shut America off and um you know how how are we going to do we're doing record production of lng gas but we've had a major setback the last 3 years in terms of our energy policy we were energy independent before this com- this current administration so how do you turn that around on a dime and, and take care of things so you know i'm worried about those headwinds i don't think we've connected all those dots i think 2024 is the year that we thought was going to come in 2023 or maybe even 2022 and it got pushed off because of intervention and now all of those you know, those things come home to roost.
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's answer some questions from the audience. So just a reminder for audience out there, if you have any questions, just go to Q&A and start asking questions. So otherwise I'll be stuck having questions because I have a lot of questions. So uh, perhaps I missed this, I think from Aram, uh, what was the forecast for single family homes price and rent? What do you think?
0: So single family home pricing is going to stay strong. The problem is if you're a baby boomer, and you want to downsize, or you want to move inland or somewhere else? Who? How many people are out there that can step in and pay you a seven, you know, pay a seven percent mortgage on, on your home? And what we're seeing is that downshift. So people that were buying eight hundred thousand to a million dollar homes have shifted down to five to six. The five to six can't afford that. They want to move down to three to four. Whoops, there's no three to four hundred thousand dollar inventory. So then you say, well, it could be if we could do higher density, smaller lots. But what does local government say? People get upset and say, no way are we going to allow high density in my neighborhood. And so the NIMBYs are alive and well in the country, stopping what we need. And the only way we're going to solve our housing problem, unfortunately, is we're going to have to go to higher density to deal with the cost and affordability. But nobody wants more density in their backyard, creates more more strain on services, more strain on schools and everything else. But um, I'm on a REIT that does manufactured housing, uh, UMH. And we can put you into um you know for a thousand dollars a month we can put you into a, almost 1400 square foot manufactured home brand new has one-third the utility costs of a stick-built apartment um that are very nice walled in community sidewalks you know carports self-storage for all of your you know hunting gear atvs kids kids yard crap um they can put away they have hoa covenants, so they can throw out you know someone that's running a, a drug trailer or whatever we don't put up with it and so when you think about that the only option really for under $180,000 housing in this country is a manufactured home community, but we can't get them done. We should be delivering a million, a million and a half homes a year in that, and we can't even get to four to 500,000. So um, I I see single family home prices staying strong. We're not going back to 2008 and nine. There's going to be no oversupply. The problem is if you need to get out, someone's got to come in that can pay a higher interest rate. And then for you to get out, you've either got to have that house paid off so you can pay cash for something, where you're going to have to go into a mortgage instead of, you know, three or 4%, you know, it was, I think 65% of all mortgages are under 4%. So how many are going to want to trade that in? And if you're someone that's relocating, you know, company relocation or you're a, you know, automobile manufacturer or a tech worker, how do you move and, and go from a sub 4% mortgage to a 7% mortgage? That's not going to change. So it's going to create a lot of more demand and absorption on multifamily. I don't have the credit score. I have the student loan debt. It got scratched and dented. So multifamily demand is going to stay very strong. Where I see it weak are those expensive urban markets. We all have decided we want to get out of there. We don't want to commute. We don't want to be where it's expensive. We want more stuff. So the suburbs are going to be particularly strong uh, in the secondary market. So I'd say focus on those strong secondary markets or exurbs around the big cities or the suburbs, because that's where the demand is. And that's not going to change. Our fundamentals are very, very good. It's just the cost of capital.
1: Got it. Yeah, I mean, uh, just talking about parking and uh, density, right? I mean, Austin was the it's the first city, major city that get rid of parking requirements because I mean, we we yeah. do a lot of ground up construction, doing a lot of development. And parking is one of the biggest issue we have in terms of how density we can do. So that's a good thing. And uh, also, recently saw that Austin depart apartment demand is more than the supply for some reason. I don't know why because we thought we were having a lot of supply coming in, but I think RealPage uh, published uh, data showing that Austin is the first city to have higher demand, which is crazy, right? So um, let me ask a few other questions. So I just want to share about uh, what's going to happen, uh, I mean, in terms of hiring from the, uh, let me share this uh, screen. So this is the screen that I got from a broker friend today where they're talking about CRE hiring. Can you see this uh, screen? So which talks about- class of 2022 and class of 2024. And if you look at who are they hiring right now, right? And if you look at asset management, is the number one most, people, most banker, most CRE sure. firm is hiring. And we believe it's because they're preparing to, you know for the deals that's coming back to the bank, right? Uh, in a multifamily or any other uh, commercial real estate. So do you see a lot of uh, deals going back to the bank? Because a lot of them bought at very high prices in 2021 and 2022 put a bridge loan and didn't match the loan to the asset, right? A lot of people bought stabilized asset with bridge loan and they thought the value is going to keep on going up and and a lot of deals are below even loan value. I'm not even talking about below equity value, right? It's below loan value. So a lot of them, even though the rate dropped today, it's it's still not going to help because we just backed like like three, four months ago. We have to go back, like really two years back to really become positive uh, uh, in terms of equity. So so, what do you think would happen in terms of 2024? Would there be a lot of commercial real estate, especially multifamily going back to the bank? I know mean, a lot of offices in trouble. You can talk about that yeah. too.
0: Office is, is tough. The multifamily, the, the challenge is the completing construction inventory. There's no permanent home for it. And the banks want them out. They want them gone. They're not going to give you an option to renew. They're not going to create a workout department. They're going to bundle those loans that They're already doing it. They bundle them up and they can take them to the Federal Home Loan Bank or they can take them to the Fed discount window and say, here's $100 million of multifamily construction loans. They're yours. Give me $100 million. And the Federal Home Loan Bank or the Fed discount window say, OK, uh, we'll do that for 12 months, but come back and pay us 8 percent and take all those loans back. So the real question is we're nine to 12 months away from the discovery of what's going to happen to all these loans that the banks are bundling and taking to the Federal Home Loan Bank to get 100 million bucks to stay liquid because they can't pay deposits. So that's how banks are staying liquid right now. They're either selling loans, they're bundling them, and they're taking them to the Federal Home Loan Bank or the Fed discount window. So what happens then? Do Does the Federal Home Loan Bank and the Fed discount window say, OK, banks, we're going to close you because you couldn't come back and take you. So we're going to take you over. Do the, we want to see. 500 to 1,000 bank failures, the Fed doesn't want that nightmare. So is the Fed going to have to back up the truck and say, put all those loans and we'll put them on our balance sheet? And we don't know. We don't know what the Fed's going to do there. But I think it's the construction loans the most risky is. The banks aren't going to reconstitute workout departments. They're bundling these loans. They're selling them to private equity. They're selling them to the Federal Bank or discount window or or temporarily transferring them. And all that has to restructure out over the next year. So I think the 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 opportunity and the risk. If you've got a construction loan and it matures in the next year, you've got a real problem. You either go get, you either believe in that deal and believe that it's going to rebalance by 2026 or you let it go. Um, you get equity or you let it go. And so you got to convince your equity partners to stay in there with you for two years and probably put some more money up um, because at least the loan to value is going from 70% to something south of 60%. So at least that's got to get more. And your expenses are, are growing more than your. Uh, rent. So your NOI is down. So you've got somewhere between about a 30 and a 40% correction at that. And so if you underwrote a construction loan in a deal thinking you're going to refine permanent market in under 5% and the NOI was going to be, was going to grow and, and, and whatnot, you're going to be disappointed. And that's where I see the real risk on the permanent stuff. The people that that have stuff it's a more orderly process. We don't have this wall of maturities like we did in, um, in 2008 and 9 when the when the market locked up and the housing crisis and we wondered what was going to you know happen to all the cmbs loans it's not that congested the gscs can do all kinds of things they're going to do things on the multifamily side uh their own they're, they're in conservatorship by the government the fed owns a lot of it on its balance sheet they're not going to screw themselves so fannie freddie and the gscs are going to work that's the unique property type that has that unique financing but the mm-hmm. banks with the construction loans, you're toast. There's no GSE solution. Um, and I think that's where the risk is gonna be.
1: Got it, got it. I think there's a question here uh, from uh, Nature, Dex- DeMexio, I mean, sorry for butchering the name. Are the fiscals needed of private or corporate acquisitions or government inquiries that will balance the capital needed pertaining to banking loans for estates, commercial or residential during liquidation up to government or us the people? Um, you get
0: that? I, I did. Maybe you can shorten it or summarize it for me.
1: Uh, I don't know. I think, uh, I think whoever asked the question, please summarize it. because This is a bit difficult to, uh, to uh, digest on what exactly being asked. So, so uh, we let them, uh, ask that question, but, but let's go to the other part. Right? So we talked about insurance costs. I think that's what, what it is. And, uh, which city do you think would recover first from this whole, uh, you know, downturn that we're seeing in the CRE?
0: So we're going to see the the most strength in those places that uh, either didn't over leverage or they had a lot of affordability, so they could they did have pricing power in rents. And rent. so where is that? It's in the Midwest. You look at a Wichita, Kansas, it was highlighted. That's where Bombardier two years ago said they were going to move their headquarters out of Canada. You got EV battery plants. You got technology companies pouring into a place like Wichita. Um, Huge job growth. Um, Those places that are seeing 5 to 7% workforce or population growth can outrun 5% inflation. And so it's really those Midwestern markets. It's the secondary markets. In the South, it's places like Huntsville, Alabama. Um, Some places in the Carolinas, Um, in in Texas, I'm very bullish on Houston. When you look at what's happening as you go out to Fort Bend, uh, Fort Bend um, uh, County, Sugarland and South down to Port Freeport. It's an incredible economic boom story. Um, uh, Port Freeport will become to Dallas what Savannah, Port of Savannah became to Atlanta. Just a huge boom, uh, what what they're doing. So these port markets are huge drivers of... um, of growth in economic activity we're seeing a huge shift um you know really again continuing from the west coast to the gulf and the south atlantic um but that can be disrupted by external things so look at the look at the panama canal right now lake nicaragua is affected by a drought can't dump enough water to make the lock system work so things are backed up big time so people exporting out of texas are having to look at sailing all the way around south america to go to go to the rest of the world to send the exports On the other side, we're seeing more traffic coming through the Suez Canal, coming to the East Coast ports. But that could blow up with what's going on with the geopolitical risks in the Middle East right now. So this whole supply chain has not been solved. Uh, It's going to be more north-south. We're going to build redundancy with the Gulf of the South Atlantic ports. Um, But the cities I I like in particular, you you look at the Panhandle in in, in Texas, very very strong. But then you got this whole vet shortage in Kenya, you know, deal with the food supply up there. You know Denver's broken, but Colorado Springs is doing very well. An hour south of Denver, with the new Space Force and um, all all the employers there, and they're about a third cheaper than Denver. um, And and they've got a great airport. Um, So everybody's moving California to Montana, so they're going to screw Montana up pretty quickly. Salt Lake has already been screwed up by the migration from California. The average home price is over five hundred thousand. You know, uh, two thirds of your workforce in the ski and tourism industry can't find housing, so they're leaving. Um, so it's really the, the the Midwest markets. You look at a, a Columbus, Ohio is very strong. And in Indianapolis, you look at a Wichita, um, you know, the whole Midwest is is very strong. And then again, those fiscally balanced states, you know, at Texas and Tennessee and Florida, the problem we're going to see in Florida, the property and casualty insurance rates of like two, three, 400 percent and people not being they're dropping insurance on their home. Um, and so are the banks going to do forced placement? On insurance and on apartments. So, what we're seeing is we're seeing companies and people that move to Florida within 12 months realizing this property and casualty and they're moving back out. They're moving to Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, where they don't have that problem. So, this property casualty insurance is going to cause people to shift. You know, maybe Houston's too expensive, so they move further further inland to get away from that insurance issue. Um, but I think it's a secondary market, it's further inland. Um, and I think the Midwest is incre-
1: incredibly strong. Got it, got it, got it. So what about industrial? I mean, I know right now, I mean, uh, the U.S. is, you know, what, do not want to rely a lot on the China for I to move forward and it's a lot of semiconductors. You know, they do not want to rely a lot on Taiwan just because they're worried about China invading Taiwan, right? Do you think there's going to be a lot of, a lot of semiconductor uh, deals coming here and industrial going to be moving back? And where do you think that asset class is going to be performing moving forward?
0: we're seeing one of the biggest booms of onshoring and manufacturing in our history bigger than the 80s so i'll give you a great example for texas to show you how big a deal it is Mm -hmm. so mexico uh, had the largest toilet paper manufacturer in north america and doing very well in mexico but they see things in the supply chain working so much better in texas so they're moving their headquarters and their primary manufacturing of toilet paper from mexico into Houston to supply all the toilet paper. So no more toilet paper shortage ever again in a pandemic. Texas is going to be this, you have electricity and toilet paper, (laughs) the two most important things you need, right? You need (laughs) lights and toilet paper, right? It's a hit, lights and toilet paper. So, um, uh, you know, whether it's EV manufacturing, we've solved the problems with our, our lithium shortage. The two biggest world discoveries have been in the Salton Sea, uh, where california goes into mexico it may be the world's largest brine um and they're they're putting it in um in tanker cars and moving it inland because they can't afford to manufacture in california and the other one was in nevada so we solved the problem we're way ahead of our of our demand in the supply production that's why you're seeing ford and gm all pulling back installing or slowing down the ev uh, manufacturing um So uh, we're seeing a big boom. If you look at the I-85 quarter from North Carolina down to Alabama, it's the most active in new manufacturing class. You look at the Midwest, go from Columbus, Ohio. uh, There's a a report I can send you from Argonne Energy and the Department of Energy that looks at where all of the EV and, uh, you know, utility and tech manufacturing is occurring is from Michigan down to the south into Texas and then Texas into Mexico. Um, So we're seeing a boom, the industrial problem. You know, we've got entities out there like CBRE that are trying to scare the world about industrial and that it's overbuilding, kind of like the people on multifamily, that we're overbuilding it. And we're really not. Uh, half of the new industrial construction is all pre, pre-leased or pre-sold, It's spoken for. It's not spec. So when they look at these numbers, there's non-disclosure agreements that they can't, nobody can disclose who's going in there. But I work with a lot of the clients and the companies and the merchant developers that are developing those. And. I'd say roughly about half or all pre-built spoken from spoken for, not not spec. And so, you know, uh, CBRE wants to say, oh, because, you know, vacancy went from 4.4 percent to 4.8 percent industrials employing. Here's my second barbecue sauce award. Barbecue sauce CBRE. You put everybody into office assets over the last 20 years and you need them to stay there and not move to industrial so you don't lose faith. But quit scaring the market on industrial. The industrial is very fine. We could go to six, seven, eight percent vacancy, which won't happen, and industrial functions just fine. The rents, if you look at the look at the earnings reports on some of these companies, so I look at I look at a, I read about four hundred of the five hundred SP and P earnings releases. I read all the REIT ones. I read things like Prologis and Prologis, and there's another one to REIT, called ILPT Industrial Land Property Trust. And what they're at is they're telling us we're ninety-five to ninety percent occupied in every lease that we have turnover, we're getting 20% plus rent increases. Does that sound like a problem in industrial? And these are the two biggest entities doing stuff. ILPT is even in Hawaii and getting 20% increases. Prologis, every market, not only here, but in Europe and in the rest of the world. So I think the, the demise of industrial is incredibly over-exaggerated. I'm very bullish on it. The challenge is it's getting harder and harder to make the numbers work for new construction. You're over 200 bucks a square foot. Your cost of capital has gone up 30 to 50%. Um, And so what it means is infill. It means adaptive reuse. It means repurposing older infill industrial. You're going to have to get more creative. Or if you're going to do new construction, we see it happening in secondary markets where it's more affordable. A Mobile, Alabama. I mean, a Montgomery, Alabama, which is the new inland port from Mobile, you can come in, you know, a couple of hours inland. You can buy land at one third the price of any major market in Texas or the southeast. You can then afford those cost increases and uh, you've got one of the best supply chains. So the Port, um, Port of Mobile will surpass Port of Charleston in industrial container activity within three years. That's how big a deal it is. Port Freeport will pass all of them within five years. Big, big deal. So, so- I'm, I'm very bullish on industrial. And I think the demise of multifamily is greatly exaggerated. Again, all these property types, except office, it boils down to the cost of capital. On office, here's what we've got going on. I used this quote two years ago. Remote work two years ago will be to office what e-commerce was to big box retail. We've got about a 50 to 70% correction coming in prices. And the only exception is suburban office where you're close to where people want to work. So suburbs fine. All the big urban stuff, with all the life companies and uh, where where CB, you know CBRE sold everybody into office building assets, that's a big problem.
1: Got it. Got it. Casey, uh, it's nice having you here. And I mean, uh, can you talk to about uh, how to people gonna reach you and uh, any last minute uh, parting words?
0: Yeah. So um, uh, my my traditional email, my personal one is kcmai. CRE at gmail.com. My new company is KCnomics and it's just the initials KCnomics, N-O-M-I-C-S-L-L-C.com and shoot me an email to either respond. Um, you know, this is the time in your career where your education, your experience investing evenings like with you right now, or going to an industry event is going to pay big dividends because guess what's being discussed at all those events? the problems that probably you're facing. And I'll guarantee you that someone in your audience tonight has solutions to a couple of the things that we've talked about or have ideas about it. Go to an industry event, tune up your education, Um, you know, don't give up on the industry. So look at what's happening with the National Association of Realtors right now. What is the value proposition from NAR? They've blown it totally. And the lawsuits are expanding into Georgia and Florida and Texas, and they got a big thing to pay off. So You know, where are we going to find it? We'll probably get our state license to be state agents and brokers. But what's the value proposition for a check that we write NAR that we then may have to pay a check for the liability to pay off the one point eight billion dollars that keeps growing every year. (laughs) So think about that. Think about what you offer, where you're going to get that education. We are going to see over the next five years how we function in commercial real estate, where we get our education. Where we invest our time and energy is going to change 180 degrees. And I think it's going to be less about NAR and it's going to be more about, um, you know, different industry groups where we get our education, uh, you know, groups like yours. Uh, investors, you know, they're not finding answers in NAR anymore. They just, you know, get a pitch. We get this rebanding where we make our, our logo bigger or we're the appraisal institute and we change it to something green. We were originally green. We went to red. Now we're going back to green with something that looks like it's a recycling uh, logo, you know, on there, whatever. Something as bad as truest Bank that looks like put your seatbelt on when they merge. Um, but rebranding is not about changing the size of your pen or your colors. It's about actually in putting infrastructure in place and technology and new education. Where are the new course offerings on things like self-storage, uh, manufactured housing, affordable housing, for rent subdivisions. Uh, you know, restructuring debt. All, all you know, property management, IREM does a great job. IREM is one of the few out there that as an industry association that has just crushed it. Um, so invest in your education right now. Don't give up. It's transaction slow. Look at where you can pivot and make money. Could be in property management. Could be you know, appraisal, working with somebody. Um, there's a lot of ways to do it. Um, but, but use this as a time to invest in yourselves. It's your education. It's your experience. And it's building those relationships to help you solve problems.
1: Awesome, Casey. Thanks for coming in uh, this evening. And uh, replay will be available. So if you have registered, you would get a replay. And we'll have it on our YouTube channel. And uh, we'll publish it through our podcast as well. Thank you so much, Casey. Thank you. Y'all have a good holidays. Be safe. Thank you. Bye. Bye
0: Bye-bye.